all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors. Today, I am talking to Sergio Radosic, the CEO and founder of Diaper. Sergio is a lifelong technologist and um, has spent many years in a lot of great different startups and uh, technology companies, both as a chief marketing officer and chief technical officer, as well as a uh, Chief Executive Officer. So with that, I'd like to introduce Sergio. Sergio, how are you? Fabulous. Look at me now. All those great titles, and I'm in a business of slinging diapers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? How did you become in the diaper business? Well, I mean, at some point in your life, you uh, decide to complicate your existence uh, by uh, having a few children, in my case, two little ones. And then you, uh, you know, wheel a garbage can full of unspeakable to the curb and if you um, if you ask yourself what happens to these things you either decide to be fine with disposing of 20 grams of plastic or twice as much plastic as a bottle of coke every time you change a diaper which by the way is roughly four thousand times before your child is uh, is potty trained or you decide to do something about it so i took the the path less traveled right let's let's do something about it so where did you where did you find out that there's a uh about the amount of plastic in this. I mean, are you just, do you just do a lot of research on this stuff? I mean, I just try. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a uh, strange, David, it's, it's a uh, well hidden, right? Um, diapers are one of those product categories, you know, they sort of belong in a genre of fast moving consumer goods, but they're very lightly regulated. Uh, meaning there's no particular requirement to disclose ingredients on them. So they have super nice names. If you think about it, you know, loves, huggies, honest, pampers, why would they hurt anybody, right? I mean, they, they, they can't possibly since they have such cool names. But the reality is when you look at their ingredient lists, which eventually can dig up on manufacturers' websites, you see they're made from polyurethane, polypropylene. Those are the two primary ingredients. And then fuel-derived uh, polyabsorbent that sits in the middle. And when I say all these things today, I sound like I know a lot about it. I mean, and I didn't. It was just really apparent on a mission. But, um, but today I do. I do know that these things are pretty monstrous. Um, and by some estimates, this is EPA's own data, the third largest contributor to landfill by solid mass. Think about it, it's only 5 million kids, so they're pretty monstrous. Yeah, we have three kids, and they're all in diapers, and it's a disaster. Like, we just, we, you know, we eat through them. So, and so diaper's mission was to make a bamboo-based diaper. I mean, to be honest, that was more of a side effect of the mission. Uh, the, the mission was to make a diaper that's more responsible, that doesn't have to end up in a landfill. So the focus was on end of life. Um, but in order to make something that doesn't sit in a landfill for 500 plus years, which is the current best estimate, um, we had to make it from a plant. So the plant that we fell in love with is the bamboo plant. Since it's not a tree, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a grass. It grows super fast. Uh, it requires no fertilizers. Um, so it's a it's a plant that, when properly harvested and properly processed, 
can be very uh, you know neutral to the planet, unlike let's say a, a, a tree or or cotton, which requires extraordinary amount of water to grow. Yeah, and so the idea is is that these these diapers they decompose like because you can't recycle the diapers; they still have to go in the trash. Correct? No, that's the cool part. They don't. Uh, even though you know you're perfectly fine to throw them in the trash. As a matter of fact, even in the trash, they degrade faster. Um, but we are very unique um, because part of our mission was this obsession with taking them from your home. I know it seems like an odd obsession, but uh, you know I, I often <laughs> joke and say we're we're the reverse DoorDash. You know they go in and we take care of what comes out. But um, hopefully not feeding your kids DoorDash. But we um, you know we we have a network in 21 cities um, of contracted drivers. Um, so big metros like Phoenix, uh, where we are, but Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, New York, Austin, Seattle, and so on, where our drivers will come to your home on a set schedule and pick up those diapers that you've separated in a bag that we provide you. And then we would, in that case, compost them in our bicoastal facilities. Um, so we do provide a complete cradle-to-compost solution uh, for those customers who have to uh, take advantage of it. Oh, that's incredible! So you can really like quantify the impact of of this of this uh, of this product offering based on like carbon emissions, huh? Absolutely, and we you know we track every single number. We're a certified B Corp, and as a, you know, being a certified B Corp, part of your commitment to sort of all three stakeholders, you know, your shareholders, your employees, and the planet. Um, we not only quantified, but we consider a very important KPI. Um, what, you know, what's the amount of pounds or, or tons, right, uh, of product that doesn't end up in landfill? What's our carbon neutral uh, or carbon positive impact, uh, which if we don't, we offset. Um, and then obviously every time we do something and make a decision, the decision is driven by sort of long-term environmental impact. I'll give you a very, very interesting case. Um, literally this week, we're launching a North American first paper-based packaging for diapers at Walmart. Um, it may seem trivial, you know, who cares, right? The pack and this or that, but the fact is that you're going to go through all the packaging as well, right? And if we can make packaging out of paper, which which is actually engineering-wise very hard, as you can imagine, diapers are designed to absorb, you know, fluid, so you can't really pack them in something that doesn't act as a good barrier, but we've, we've done it and done it at scale. So now you can take the pack that your diapers came in, and even if you don't do nothing else, right? You can put them in your recycled paper bin with your municipality. And we think that's small win, but a huge win, right? Uh, sure. And that's, that's how we've been um, sort of running the business is a whole bunch of small wins right? that eventually mm-hmm. to a, sort of add up to a larger win. And so Diaper is considered a, a challenger brand. And so what does that mean specifically in the direct-to-consumer you know, um, uh, construct? and you know, how is that positioned to kind of, to kind of like the, the rest of the the giants that are owned by, you know, the Procter & Gamble's, the J&J's, these big consumer, you know, staple kind of companies? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're the very definition of challenger brand. Uh, and it's not just um, not just because you're small and nimble, which, you know, there's a temporary advantage at some point, you're going to get larger and, and less nimble, right? Um, but the fact is that, at least in our industry, um, the two juggernauts that you mentioned, and in our case, it's Kimberly Clark and Procter and Gamble, respectively, you know, roughly control eighty percent of the market. Um, wow! So we're, we're, yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and in that eighty percent of the market, roughly seventy percent is controlled by two retailers, uh, namely Walmart and Target. Right. So if you 
are going to challenge the status quo. You have to take the sort of the fight um, to those two, you know, very, very respectable, you know, heavily funded you know, PNG's world's largest advertiser, right? It's, 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 it's not a superlative you can make that it's not going to describe their organization of fantastic engineering, you know, great reputation. Um, so you're going to have to take the battle to them on, on some subject. In our case, it's sustainability, end of life. And then you have to convince retail partners who have been selling billions and billions of dollars of the other people's products to take a risk, right? Um, because if you're not in retail, you're a hobby, right? Um, that's an unfortunate fact. Unlike, you know, let's say a makeup line or even a food and bed line, right? Uh, you can probably do okay on Amazon and D2C, um, but in the diaper space, yes, people certainly buy it on Amazon, certainly buy it on D2C, but 70 plus percent of purchases are made of those two retailers. And, and you have to learn it the hard way, right? Those diaper products are not hard to buy. You know, they're non-perishable, you know, they're, they're packed correctly. It's easy to pick up on your trip to retail or their own .com, you know, growing .com presence, right? Um, so you have, again, you have a dual challenge. You're challenging the makers, but then also challenging the distributors to take a risk. And, and I've learned words, David, that I, I really didn't know what they meant in any possible way. You know, how do you become accretive or margin accretive, right? Uh, differentiating, uh, you know, yes, you see, you think you have all the answers, but it, Balls down. You can't raise the price because if you're at a higher price, you're not. You may be margin accretive, but you're not volume accretive. Right? And if mm-hmm. you lower the price, now you have a high velocity. Another word I learned in retail, but you're not generating absolute dollars that they need to support the shelf space. So you have all kinds of other considerations to challenge your brand. Um, and in the meantime, you're supposed to also do better, which you are, right? Right. Initially, your expense structure is worse, right? Because you're using better materials and, and alike, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you think about that? Because you know you're su- I mean you're subscale at least compared to you know the giant ju- the ju- juggernauts, and you're you're creating a, a product that has better materials. Um, so how, d- when you when you did your analysis and you raised capital and you went to market, do you just is there an assumption that you're hitting a segment of the market that's willing to pay more, right? In that's order to be start, right. Yes. I mean, yeah, certainly it's where you start. You know. Uh, the, the one unique advantage in our category, and, and again, maybe, maybe it's true to others, I just don't have an experience in other categories, so I'll make this statement that may not be, you know, that's not entirely qualified, but, you know, it's, what's interesting about diapering um, is that there's 13,000 new customers every day. That's about the birth rate in the United States, and that birth rate has been relatively stable uh, over the past 15, 20 years, no minor fluctuations here and there, but at the same time, you lose 13,000 customers each day, right? If that makes sense, you know, there's the happiest day for most parents is, you know, when they stop replacing diapers and coincidentally, it's also the happiest day for the planet, right? So we're, we're all for it, right? Just, you know, stop, right? As soon as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you have new customers, you can really much easier capture emerging trends, right? So the trend that happened in the past 10 years toward more sustainable, more transparent um, sort of product purchasing, it's much easier to capture in my category, if that makes sense. Um, so we've had... You know, moms have voted 10, 15 years ago with their wallets and with their minds, right, that they want to buy something that, you know, doesn't kill the planet, right? Um, so when we come into market, we can capture um, not only early adopters, yes, the ones who pay more, but also folks who are on a margin and are willing to pay a slight premium uh, for a much, much bigger gain. So I think there's there's uniqueness there um, that, that it's allowing us to faster capture the market. And that's why we won retail placements like Walmart, which is sort of the, the prize, right? Um, and it, uh, it's allowing us to 
convince even our retail partners to take a risk on us because the early data, you know, we served almost quarter million customers just in the first three years of our existence. We're up to 600,000 now. But, you know, we, we can show the data from households that shows not only initial trial, but a very, very high repurchase rate. And that is the holy grail for retail partners, right? Yes, uh-huh. I can sell a product and discount. I can, you know, there's lots of things you can do to drive trial, but will you come back and ask for it by name, right? Um, and uh-huh. that's something we're very, very, uh, very good at. So, you know, look, um, I've started in the dot-com days, you know, 30 years ago, so I'm not drawing a peril, but, you know, there is a bit of a land grab um, because you you do want to grab this new consumer because this new consumer will spend on other products in your portfolio. And, and we have proven that as well by releasing wipes and baby wash and where you can blend your margin up, right? Um, mm-hmm. As long as you get them sort of custom to their sort of everyday consumptive product um, and, um, and get them to love you. And, you know, if I'm proud of anything, I'm proud of many things here, but, you know, 4.9 star consumer rating, um, it's about as good as it gets, right? Um, and that that tells you not only what you're doing is right because you're a great capitalist enterprise, but you're also building a product, right, that consumers actually appreciate and love, right? Yeah, the customers, uh, the customers, you know, reviews speak volumes. What was the transition like from going direct to consumer on the internet to, to retail? Brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, you know, brutal in the sense that, yeah, we, we had some really bright minds, um, you know, working with us with, you know, 20 plus year retail experience. But in this category, you know, the, there's a few challenging brands that came along, like the Honest Company and to an extent Hello Bello, both seem like very, very, uh, you know, capable and nice people. But I don't think they've transitioned as successful in terms of margin protection, right? Um, okay. So in a way, I guess we had them to look look to, right? Um, so we're- yeah, the, That was Jessica Alba's company, yeah? Yeah, yeah. They've yeah. been around for a decade now, raised a billion dollars and if you have to turn a profit, this is not meant as a cynical negative comment, just to say it's it's hard, right? I'm sure they would have sure. preferred the other way around, but, um, but so we're able to learn from them, you know, not being the first ones in the field uh, and really create a channel strategy that capitalizes on the channel's unique strengths, right? So Walmart's strength for us is about driving very high velocity, right? Um, and since Walmart doesn't have discounting capabilities, it's everyday low price. You really yeah. have to come in. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have to come with the right price, so you're done. Right. Like, you can assist it, right? And then we protected the turf on Amazon, where we found much less sensitivity to price, despite what you would normally think. We thought it would be much more price sensitivity. We found the Amazon consumers value other things like reliability of delivery, speed of delivery, right? Um, returns, right? In a way that, um, that, you know, I guess benefits Amazon and benefits the consumer. So they're willing to pay a slightly higher premium there. So we created a three-tier strategy that differentiates what we offer in D2C. Give a specific example in our D2C. We offer lifetime returns and exchanges for our D2C customers, something that Walmart or Amazon is going to offer, right? So sure. if that's important to you, you'll buy it. So in the middle of the pricing curve from us, right? And if you want it tomorrow, I, I can't compete with that, you know? Next day or two deliveries, table stakes for them, but it's not for me, right? Uh, even right. my distribution network, then I guess you pay a slightly more and, and and get it for Amazon. And if you, you know, if you want to be quick and do it today, and you'll just walk to Walmart and actually pay the least amount, right? Um, but it obviously is the nature of the particular channel. Do you did you have to lower your Amazon prices when you went to Walmart because it has to be we, kind of we, like in parity? 
Yeah, it, it, it gets tricky uh, in terms of sort of uh, their own actions, in terms of price matching and the like. You know, it's not a pretty situation, but um, we try to reserve certain SKUs uh, for Amazon only. Um, and we've been creating, you know, some really strong bundles that Amazon customers seem to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can protect uh, some of your, your price. But look, at the end of the day, price per unit is a pretty public information, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you will eventually have to get as close to parity as possible. But, you know, my answer to that is, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see what they do well uh, and how Amazon can really drive trial in a way that, that's really extraordinary for us. I mean, there's almost sort of like a bottomless volume, right, of, of moms totally. looking for diapers. So you may have to trade some margin, right? Um, but your alternative is you will give that CAC to Zuck, right? So <laughs> well, right. No, exactly. You're paying one way or the other, right? So I'm not trying to give you a a better discounted product for you to try than to pay, you know, two, three X the CAC to a, to an online, to a social media platform. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I guess what my, my question is, is, you know, I see a lot of direct to consumer brands out there. I mean, probably a lot more nichier than a category of like diapers. And a lot of what I hear is them, let's drive traffic back to our own native website, our own native brand. Let's own that relationship with the customer. Um, but in a case where diapers, where you do get this bottomless pit, right, of customers, um, it's better to just essentially play than try to, you know, own that whole or auger that whole experience, right? So how do you think about owning your brand messaging, you know, while selling through these partners? I'm going to probably sound contrary, but I think that's all thinking. Uh, uh-huh. The brand lives, you know, re- really regardless of the distribution channel. Um, okay. We are big believers in the brand building exercise. Uh, whether, been, whether you've been to our website or you bought a product at Walmart or you've seen it on Amazon, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of work uh, led by some fantastic in-house people um, to define and execute the brand blade, right? And for us, the brand blade is about being a kinder business, right? Um, and being a kinder business, yes, it has a lot to do with pricing and, and market positioning, but it is also about being a B Corp. It's also about using responsible materials. It's also being um, uh, genuinely uh, positive toward your employees. It's about... Uh, disclosing your environmental impact and so on and so forth. So when you start from there, you adapt those brand blades to a particular channel, right? Um, and then you don't worry as much if the customer, you know, buys your product at Walmart or buys it from you because they're going to get a subset of your brand blade that is applicable to that channel, right? Um, mm-hmm. They'll get the rest of it because they will be curious and come to your website or see a PDP mm-hmm. on Amazon and get the rest of the story. So yes, not every channel is is... It's easy to control your brand story, but if your brand narrative has a sharp blade, we do believe that uh, the brand, tra- brand translates. Um, this is a funny story. At one point in the company's history, where this is our fifth year, so it's not a long history, but you know, halfway through, I wanted to kill our giraffe. Um, not physically, we have a, a giraffe, um, um, you know, logotype, if you want. Um, my thinking was, oh, look, we're gonna, you know. Sort of it go beyond sort of being just a childcare brand, even though it's pretty hard to name like diaper, but uh, you know, very few people buy a diaper toothpaste, right? Um, but um, then the pushback for consumer across every channel was consistent, right? Saying, mm-hmm. no, right? I actually love that you have a hyper inclusive, right? Um, nondescript, uh, gender neutral, uh, 
wildly recognizable person, right? And we didn't even think about a giraffe as a person, right? We thought of it as a logotype, right? Right. And since then, we've named this person Frankie because we're pretty frank. And now this person has its own life with its own line of toys and and, and like. So it's a really good exercise because you don't realize the power of your brand until you try to take it away. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. (laughs) I want to go in store and not have to look for you. Uh, because I know the big giant yellow box. So if I go scroll on a on a you know on a on a Facebook stream, right? We our biggest scroll stopper on Facebook, David, is our giraffe. It's mm-hmm. I can put I can put a tagline that says my diaper cures cancer, and nobody's gonna stop, right? Um, right. but um, I put a you know my friend you know my Frankie on a box in the middle of the stream, consumers stop because they can recognize what it stands for, right? And that was a total accident, right? Pure accident, completely pure accident. He uh you know, he was born because we wanted something, and um, you know, and there he is now. Probably, uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he is he is adorable, but you know, it, it wasn't by design, right? You ever thought about going into older adults? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was you know, when you write your business plan, and you probably interviewed a lot of founders. Uh, if I told you everything was my business plan, you would you would tell me I was crazy. There was yes, we we're going to take over the world, um, and we soon certainly still can. Um, you know, the, the market opportunity in baby diapers is just simply too large to, to totally just in, right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, US only sales. Um, you know, the as you get bigger, you know, we're we're encroaching on a hundred million run rate. It um, it gives you gives you permission to exist, but it also gives you a tremendous amount of responsibility to execute on that scale. Um, mm-hmm. Innovation, even for us, is becoming slower and you know more CPG like. You know, I, I jokingly I'll give you a little secret. You know. We're launching a new product on July first. That is a I can't actually tell what it is, but it's a it's a very extraordinary product that took us almost two years of R and D and at home testing. And these are terms we didn't know five years ago, right? Because mm-hmm. you just do it, right? Because you have no responsibility of you know a million dollar business, right? Um, and today, even for us, you have to worry about cannibalization and market acceptance and you know legal liability and so on and so forth. Right? So. Um- I don't think I could think of a harder business than yours, <laughs> especially from a guy that came from SaaS or, you know, tech enabled technology to go into something that a has a real um, strong ESG engine slash supply chain slash omni channel <laughs> slash direct to consumer. I mean, you, you truly are a masochist, sir. Uh, you are not wrong. As you as you mentioned in your intro, you know, this is my 13th startup, um, my first physical good startup, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then not only I'm not just making one physical good, I'm making it across territories with a supply chain that's in, you know, six countries. And I'm selling it to some of the hardest negotiates on the planet, right, in terms of retail. Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was yeah. also, you know, raising capital in the midst of COVID. Um, funny story there, I'm sure you heard it from others, but, you know, I've when I raised money last time, um, we raised almost forty million dollars in that round uh, combined with investors I've never met in person, right? Um, and just that by itself is a new, new paradigm, right? I mean, it's you you're raising money off of Dropbox documents and uh, you know thousand by thousand pixel Zoom streams, right? Um, mm-hmm. and it, um, it it changes everything, and it's in a way it makes it faster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to wait for a two, three week meeting, right? To move to our next step, right? On the other hand, it makes it faster, right? I can't tell you how many no's I've gotten, David. Uh, I, I think the count was over a hundred, right? For the same reasons you mentioned, right? Um, so mm-hmm. hard no's, meaning no's that people thought about it, mostly because of my prior experience. You know, sure. 
specifically about me and the business, you know, sort of generally, but then they go, oh, but Walmart, but uh, supply chain, and these containers, and like, I don't Margins, know. yeah. Yeah, margin. <laughs> Let's not do this. Come next time. Yeah. Next time. We'll, we'll yeah, time. right. Advertise. Yeah, how, how, how hard did you get hit with the, the privacy issues with, um, with Apple and Facebook? Because I know that was a huge channel for you. It was. Uh, it was for a while our, our we would say almost only channel. Let's say eighty percent of our spend was directed towards uh, you know Facebook Meta uh, platforms. Um, it hit us hard for the first month or two, um, just because we. You know, it takes a little bit of learning from on your end, not so much on their end, to figure out how to properly attribute and measure um, mm-hmm. your your sort of conversions. So you may now not get some of the same direct signals that you used to get, and things are actually getting better, despite what some media will tell you. But um, you just have to refocus um, kind of how you buy media and what are some of the attribution mechanisms that you use. The other thing that's interesting to us, like I mentioned, you know, our product doesn't have a wide appeal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, very few people, I joke, if I was giving samples at a mall, right, um, it would be a 90% plus targeted sample program, right? Because mm-hmm. unless you're like an absolute weirdo, you're not going to pick up a diaper, right? There's no purpose to you, right? No. Um, so, so the self-selection helps first-party signals like ours work so much better, right? Um, so, you know, if you do eventually click on that ad and I have a first-party, you know, pixel, server-side pixel, I will be able to carry it across channels because you are an interest in sort of highly targeted party. And and the few things we've done early on, like our partnership with Babylist, which is a fabulous company, one of the, it's, it's the largest baby retailer um, because they focus on families who build Babylist before the babies are born. That's a hugely valuable signal to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you add my product to your baby list for your rich uncle to buy, that's a gold signal to me, right? Um, even if I don't quite do it today, right? I will have opportunity to sort of uh, a day like off of it. Um, and I would say one more thing that we did, which is, I think, pretty extraordinary early on, is we invested in data enhancement. Um, it's part of my personal background. I've been in data business in a few startups. So every single record that comes to us, whether it's anonymous or post-purchase, abandoned cart, runs through a full data enhancement, you know, privacy compliant for sure, that we use internally to model our behavior clusters, right? Um, So when we go to a retail partner, we can say with confidence, hey, our customer has this belief system, has these stores they're purchasing, this media they, they, they consume. Um, uh, this is sort of the house, the usual household incomes, you know, presence of children. And it really helps us then find more lookalike customers. They may not seem obvious today, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I'll give one specific example. You know, one of our top targeting categories is people who buy a little bit sort of fancy um, kids' clothes, right? Um, so there's, there's not a signal about, yeah, sure, you have a child, but it's a signal that tells about income, propensity, right? Um, kind of where you where you want to spend your money, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we target that signal pretty strongly um, versus maybe more traditionally, hey, you know, anybody who has a child under three, that's a too broad of a market, even for yeah. Facebook to, uh, to find good conversions. Yeah, selling to a retailer almost kind of sounds like selling for an investment like partner. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to bring a ton of data, you have to spin the story, right? And you have to try to find that kind of, that market fit, right? Yeah, but imagine, okay, as good as I imagine if every single day it was, you know, 100 new VCs, right? And 90 of them are brand new. They've never had a child, never had a, it was always their first investment. Even as an entrepreneur, it's very hard to get first time funds. Totally. Right. Yeah. Um, so, because you don't quite know what's going to, you know, how do you tailor your story to them, right? Um, 
And um, yeah, yeah, that's actually a great comparison. So yeah, I've, I've spoken to, you know, probably 500 funds in my career and, you know, I wish I could pre-qualify. If it's their first fund, I'm not pitching it. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a hard one, right? Yeah. And so speaking of the capital stack, you, 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 you know, were able to find an investor that specialized in direct-to-consumer challenger brands, the Craftery. I mean, I couldn't imagine there being a ton of those out there, right? You know, the ones that had that kind of specialty. No, uh, I mean, surprisingly, there's a, a tremendous amount of private equity firms, right, once you mm. accomplish a scale, you know. And in Got our it. business, you know, 100 million for some reason, Oddly, actually, whatever scale you're in, that's not the one they want. Just kidding. If you're 20 million, they want. <laughs> you're, 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 yeah, you're about a quarter off, right? Yeah, about a quarter off. But, uh, but let's say 100 has been mostly quoted as, as being uh, being it, right? it scale, right? But 100 million and, and let's say, you know, zero to, uh, you know, plus 10 will be in a perfect world. They've been, uh, you know, you're, you're a great candidate for a lot of capital sources. What, what Craftery has, in addition to just being, you know, extraordinarily knowledgeable in the CPG space, um, they have a focus on being more of a permanent source of capital. So they can come in earlier on, right? Because they, they don't mm-hmm. have to sit in your horizon that, you know, because maybe longer, right? Uh, if you come in earlier, right? Um, you know, and, and, and there, there are, you know, I think there'll be more funds like that who have the strategic focus. You know, for us, I would say if, if there are capital readers, um, or capital listeners, I think a majority of the listeners, um, I would say the biggest claim of fame, uh, truly the biggest, out of the absolute amount of capital, I've like, like, raised a lot of money, is we don't have a single share of preferred stock. Uh, oh, interesting. And, okay. Wow. I think that's a, that's a newsworthy item, right? Um, yeah. And, um, we are all common, um, and that's not the easy thing to negotiate as a founder or as, as you know, for, especially for subsequent investments, right? Uh, but once you kind of explain to your investors why it needs to stay that way, I think it's going to start to make more and more sense in the future. Uh, if um, it's very hard to align your your management interests, right? So once then your investors say, show me the depth of your bench, right? I want to see these amazing people on your bench, right? But let's give them an option to sit behind seven letters of my capital, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. It's a hard one. The more experienced your management team is, the more sophisticated they are in doing their own math, right? And saying, mm-hmm. if, if I want to give up a million dollar W2 at XYZ CPG to join you, right? Um, I also want to know that what I'm trading for, this options and, and the future upside is realizable in some some amount of time. So uh, I was really able to turn the story of, of building a management team as a, as one of the major reasons to not have a uh, a, a preferred structure, right? Uh, and which is why today we have a head of innovation that spent she spent twenty years at, at a major competitor. My head of sales twenty five years a global head of sales for top three CPG. Um, there's an example, right? So they didn't come here for cash. I didn't have it, right? Um, they came mm-hmm. here because their stock actually has meaningful capacity to appreciate. You know, and I think there's, I think there, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently with one of the partners at Bessemer, and I think that they are a firm that is definitely open to more common structures as long as, they, I mean, they, they would much rather have ownership and, you know, a, a more palatable share price than preferences. Um, just because, you know, it's kind of like there's, there's an upside and then or there's like, you know, there's upside and then there's like a no side, right? <laughs> you know, like these things can go down pretty quickly if, you know, management's not incentivized correctly. 
And as long as things are priced fairly, I mean, generally you see those types of wonky type preferred structures once valuations start to become kind of untenable, right? But if, you know, everyone's interests are aligned and like things are priced fairly, I think that that's a really great way to align incentive. No, I mean, if, if we were pricing preferred, we would have on paper been more valuable across the rounds, right? Because sure. But, yeah, future value, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, certainly we, we've given up a lot of ownership today. Um, on the other hand, I said, it, it does align us correctly. Um, so when we have our you know, board meetings, it's really never about the price per share. Uh, it hasn't been about price per share in the past five years. It's actually always been about, for us at least, about brand building. Um, and you know, how do we build an enduring American brand? It's a statement I keep repeating to all my team members, right? We're an American brand, uh, which is, I think, something that this country is known for, right? Um, but how do you build an enduring brand, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that takes, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, right? And a lot of capital, right? Uh, and that cannot be by buying ads on Meta, right? Um, right. It's, it simply is not, right? No. Um, so your horizon has to be longer, right? Your, you know, your, your losses, if you want, right, have to account for the fact that a lot of that is going toward brand building. So again, on a specific example, every quarter we measure our brand perception in the market, right? Using third-party uh, paneling firms. Very few startups do that in a growth stage, right? You say, well, I, I did the sale, right? I, I did my duty. Right. Uh, for us, that is an metric, but not the metric that carries any higher weight than share voice, uh, than brand recognition. Um, these are very important things, right? And, and what we said today, we obviously there's lots of space to go. We're not quite the household name is Pampers, but we're also not, you know, a person who just bought an ad of Facebook group. Right. So where do you see the puck going in the direct-to-consumer construct? I mean, we're, we're I mean, there's just been so much noise around Web2 and data. <clears throat> um we're, we're, I mean, like, is it, is it, is, do you feel like it's, it's a lot more noise than signal or do you feel like there's a big, you know, resurgence of, of, um, of change that are, is bound to happen on the company side? I think the moment we stop referring to it as a D2C company, we'll get a better answer to that, right? Um, it is a, is a wickedly fast channel to experience, you know, customer perception, right? Um, but it's not a channel that can exist by itself for, I think, majority of the brands, right? Um, so I think that if um, if you focus on that as a business plan, um, and maybe things will change. We'll have another TikTok to make things all, all better all of a sudden, and then maybe have another right. two, three-year run, right? But the fact is that you're not changing the very basic issue for consumers, right? You're, you're changing a place where they buy it, but the motivation to buy it's, it's always the same, right? You either, you know, you either have affinity for the brand because of the belief system or because, right, the promises, you know, whatever theory you're subscribing, you're, you're, you're hiring a product to do a job, right? It's one of them, right? But in a way, but you are, right? Um, you need the product to do a job and do it fairly for you. If D2C delivers the product to you faster, initially cheaper, um, so be it. But at the end of the round, it's not it's a, a truly a sustainable, a sustainable model because we talked about this earlier, Whoever you're competing with generally has larger scale, right? Better sourcing, better engineering, right? So it's pretty hard to do. So unlike mining your background of software, right? Where you can continue outsmarting them and it's sometimes enough, right? Um, it's, it's wickedly hard to outsmart very large CPGs because 
they actually have a lot of smart people. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, they're not this big monolith. Patents and R and D and and supply chain yeah. considerations like, right? I'm not I'm not a secret like a you know CPJO file, but uh, but it, but it is it is extraordinary. You're competing with companies who, in one of our examples, is five thousand people in R and D, right? Uh, not all five thousand are incapable of you know creative thought, yeah. right? Um, so it's um it's it's something you have to. I think the moment you acknowledge that, um, then you treat a D to C as fail fast channel, right? Great mm-hmm. for getting customer feedback, the market proof, whatever, you know, whatever terminology you want to use, right? Um, but then you go, well, how does it then go into households? How does how do Americans relate to this at a larger scale? And then that's without Amazon strategy. Now you have to have an Amazon strategy, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. a whole other exercise, right? Um, and you have to have obviously a, a retail strategy. There's been I'll finish. There's been an extraordinary shift again, right? Post COVID, right? Um, where you know the powers move, right? Maybe to see for a while. Now it's all all swung to retail, right? Um, right. But that's again temporary, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's going to keep going back and forth. And I think if you average over 10, 15 years, it's probably about the same balance, right? Uh, it just depends on sort of timing. Is there like a, a hybrid of? I guess online shopping through retail, like the Instacarts. Like I don't remember the last time I've been into a, a big box grocer, and I don't know if that's just my my market might be smaller. But do you see a lot of people going away from retail, or not going away from retail, but going away from the in store type purchases versus ordering online through a Instacart or whatever Target yeah, company is? We're talking even before COVID. I would have said yes, just from my again similar personal observation. But you know, we're terrible samples, right? You and I are actually terrible samples, right? Um, totally. So, yeah. So, uh, but I would have said, sort of innocently, yes. There's a there's a shift away in go puffs, and and so everything's going to be tomorrow, and and you know you're not going to have to ever you know get out of your house. And then COVID happened, and and nobody was getting out of their house, and everything was getting delivered. But then we just basically fed the the distribution engine with fat profits, and then we didn't want to do that anymore. And then um, now we're saying, well, no, I kind of want to leave the house, and and you know. Right. Uh, a, a relatively big swing to actually physically go to retail. What I think is extraordinary as an observant, uh, not participant, well, I guess participant indirectly, but is how well the companies like Walmart are executing against Amazon's advantage in home mm-hmm. delivery. Um, yeah. Was, and hopefully they're not listening. I wasn't a Walmart shopper, right? Even though they're a great partner of ours. So it, it, yeah. Maybe it was like self selection. Maybe it's, you know, I, don't know, I just didn't really feel like that I belonged to that store, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I still haven't been to more than a few stores just to see my own product, but both my wife and I become uh, very loyal Walmart Plus shoppers um, because their same-day delivery capability, which is their own drivers, quarter million drivers, um, their eco-focus on it, you know, paper packaging, um, you know, obviously no hassle returns and the like has changed our attitude. And then you know they cut a deal with Amex to be a you know included with Amex Platinum. Think about affiliation, right? Almost illogical, totally. right? Yeah. And um, and here we are, right? We're in a we're their dream customer who would have never shopped at Walmart, was a platinum car holder, right? And now mm-hmm. we're burning our money at Walmart versus doing it at Amazon, right? So so I think that's an extraordinary move is is uh, Candy's retailers. And I, I just re- learned something, uh, so I'll spew it with without fact checking it. Um, but there's been only um, eight billion dollar brands launched in the tw- uh, past twenty years by a CPG. Right. Um, hmm. So, meaning 
the big brands are very hard to come by. That's billion dollars in sales, right? During those same 20 years, Target has launched 16 billion dollar brands. Whoa. And you, you know some of them, like Method and, and, and alike, right? Like internal um, brands. Internal brands, right? Um, so it, um, it shows you that when you have a right strategy, you can execute correctly and you understand your customer, right? The yeah. brands can come from very unusual places, right? Um, totally. It's, it's something really it was an eye-opening uh, statistic for me, right? That is incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you're talking about just, you know, smart people and, and legacy clunky companies. I mean, Walmart's been very innovative over the last, you know, decades around healthcare, around clinical trials, around like all these different types of, you know, applications of retail health. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, I heard a rumor, I mean, uh, not to, uh, the, you know, Walmart is public, but, uh, you know, it was you know, being a press about, you know, Walmart potentially buying TikTok, you know, if the TikTok gets sort of forced to spin up <laughs> Uh, and it was a serious article. Uh, yeah. Aaron, and, and I thought about it for a second. I said, look, it's brilliant, right? I mean, uh, totally. It, 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 there's, there's so many reasons for them to, to also own a fastest growing, you know, young generation, you know, social mm-hmm. platform. Not social. It's, it's really it's, it's different. It's a different beast, right? Um, yeah. And um, that's the company that. It's a know, media it's, company, really. It's, yeah, like, it's, yeah. a, it's a user generated media company. So um, like, um, perfect for placement, product placements. Um, cool. Sergio, thank you so much for jumping on. I really appreciate it. A couple canned questions. Uh, what is your favorite book? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I like historical anomalies. So um, good one is, your audience is going to hate it, Hitler's Pope. Um, it's a great book about the connection between the Nazi regime and the Catholic Church. Um, just it's a riveting read, right? Um, so it's oh, cool. something. Well, no, you'd, you'd be surprised. My, my audience loves Nazis. So, um, oh, great. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I don't do any market research on who listens. I mean, we might be speaking into a vacuum. So, um, second is uh, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Plan D. You know, people talk about plan B and plan C. <laughs> yeah, plan D, right? Um, yeah. I mean, if you're in doubt, remind yourself of three letters, SVB, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so whatever whatever plan you had, there's, there's a plan D, right? Totally. Um, yeah, there's a great, great quote I got from another founder. It says, you know, your job as a founder is to get to plan A to the plan that works without running out of money, right? <laughs> you know, whatever whatever letter that is. And um, there's, always, there's always a move, as Ben Horowitz would say. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Sergio. Again, everyone, thank you for turning into the Capital Stack. Uh, We drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like it, please share it. Please subscribe and uh, go to your nearest Walmart and get a a pack of diapers. Do something well for the uh, community. All right, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.